You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to this evening and to my honor to welcome Sara Ahmed to the House of Literature for the very first time. My name is Ose Lapugolan and I work for the artistic program here at the House of Literature. Sara Ahmed is a scholar, a writer, and a self-professed feminist killjoy. She has worked extensively with feminist theory, queer theory, and critical race theory. She's the author of, I think, nine books so far, and she is a seminal figure in what is known as the emotive turn in the humanities and social sciences, most notably with her books Strange Encounters and The Cultural Politics of Emotions. I'll leave it to Ahmed to talk about this in more detail, um, but I'll just say that these books are just as relevant to today as they were at the publication in 2000 and 2004. Just looking at the discourse around the yellow vests, around Brexit, around the growing right-wing populism, around the climate school strikes, how closely connected emotions are with politics and with what is deemed rational or irrational. Ahmed's current project focuses on the uses of complaint and equally re relevant, as I say, to current debates, not least in the aftermath of Me Too, with how institutions and media deal with the whistleblowers and with the structures and discrimination that lead to complaints. This evening, Ahmed will first give a lecture touching on some of these topics, and then we'll have a short break. And then at around eight, um, if we keep time, we will resume with a short stage conversation between Ahmed and Hannah Helset. She is the editor um, of Nytt um, Norsk and one of the authors of the book Det jeg skulle ha sagt, Handbook mot seksuell trakassering, or in English, what I should have said, a handbook against sexual harassment. But first, please give a warm welcome to Sara Ahmed. Thank you so much. I'm just absolutely delighted to be here with you and to be sharing this work on complaint. And this lecture is dedicated to all those who have made complaints or would have made complaints if they could have made complaints. So my lecture tonight is an attempt to think through the experience of complaint, to think about that experience and to think with those who make complaints. I'll be drawing on interviews I've conducted with staff and students who have made complaints within universities that relate to unfair, unjust, or unequal working conditions or to abuses of power, such as harassment and bullying. I want to listen to complaint, to give room to complaint in order to counter a history that has become routine in which those who complain are dismissed, rendered incredible, suspicious, untrustworthy. To make a complaint requires telling a story, often again and again, to those who've been appointed to receive that story. So I'm listening to stories about stories. When does a complaint begin? Those I interviewed often began with this question, the question of how to begin. It can be hard to know where to start, because it is hard to know when the complaint starts. 
let me share the opening words from a testimony offered by a senior researcher who made a complaint about bullying and harassment. It is always so complex and so difficult and so upsetting still, even just knowing where to start is. And it's funny, even just starting, I can feel emotion coming out and all I want to do is I want to start crying. And I'm also gonna to have to present a good front, professional and corrected, and I know I, I just can't let it affect me. And I'm gonna to have to talk about this as something that is detached. And I think, why am I putting so much effort into presenting something that is so much part of me? Emotion comes out in telling the story Emotion makes it hard to tell the story. You make an effort to present something because it has become part of you, because it matters to you and what you can do. But how it matters is what makes it hard to present. How do you pull yourself together to share an experience if the experience is of breaking apart? And by experience, I'm referring not only to the experiences that lead to complaint, but the experiences of making that complaint. These experiences can be hard to untangle. They can often be part of the same experience. When you complain about what you encounter, you often then encounter what you complain about. If you complain about bullying, you are often bullied. If you complain about harassment, you are often harassed, and so on. And so it goes on. Harassment and bullying can be enacted by those who are appointed to investigate the very problem of harassment and bullying. She describes receiving the results of a so-called independent investigation. The conclusion of their report was that I participated actively in the conflict and they monopolized the work. This word, monopolized, I had so much rage and anger. Not only did they abandon me, but they made it my fault for monopolizing the work, and this is it. This thing, I have it inside of my head all the time. I monopolize, monopolize, monopolize. The word stops me from doing anything, from writing something, writing a text, writing an article. What am I doing? Am I monopolizing things again? How dare I even enjoy what I do now? Who do I think I am? I am nothing. I am worthless. My work might be good, but I am not. And I have completely internalized this in a way that is very, very, very damaging. How we feel in a situation is how we learn about a situation. We learn from what gets under our skin. That word monopolized gets under her skin. When it sticks to her, she becomes stuck, unable to write, unable to do her work. Words can carry a charge. They can be used to locate a problem in those who locate a problem. You can end up being made to feel that you are the problem, that the problem is you. Words can carry the weight of an injustice. They can transmit a history. The word complaint, too, is a transmitter. It derives from the old French complendre to lament, an expression of sorrow and grief from Latin lamentum, wailing, moaning, weeping. Complaint seems to catch how those who challenge power become sites of negation. To complain as to become a container of negative affect, a leaky container, speaking out as spilling over. I think of my method in this project as listening out for what spills, for what seeps and weeps, hearing a spillage as speech. Listening to those who complain is another way of thinking about what I call the cultural politics of emotion. Emotions do things, shaping bodies as well as worlds. When we are turned inside out, the outside gets in. So my analysis tonight will focus on institutions. 
I want to relate the mechanical to the experiential, showing how sympathy can become part of a machinery. Those who make complaints in institutions teach us not only how institutions work, but for whom they work. Complainers often become strangers, those who are recognized as not from here, who are registered as endangering what or who is here. I was inspired to this project after taking part in a series of inquiries into sexual harassment and sexual misconduct prompted by a collective complaint lodged by students. I learned so much from the work they had to do to keep that complaint going. So my lecture tonight is thinking with those I've spoken to. The complainers, they are my guides. They are my feminist philosophers. They are my critical theorists, and they are also my collective. Because this material is confidential, I'll be sharing only fragments from each story. A complaint can be a shattering. Like a broken jug, we can be left in pieces. Are we picking up some of these pieces today, not in order to create the illusion of some unbroken thing, but so that we can learn from the sharpness of each piece, how they might fit together? So this first section is called Institutional Mechanics. So making a complaint often requires becoming an institutional mechanic. You have to work out how to get the complaint through the system. And it is because of the difficulty of getting through that complaints often end up being about a system. This point might seem counterintuitive because most organisations have complaints procedures, so surely to make a complaint is to follow the procedure for making a complaint. But things are not always as they seem. Complaints procedures are often pictured through flowcharts with paths and arrows that give the would-be complainant a clear route through. <laughs> the, clar the clarity of a procedure can be used to indicate a commitment. So one university writes that complaints will assist in identifying problems and trends across the university, and they then write that complaints will form the basis of positive publicity in demonstrating that identified issues have been resolved. So when complaints record a problem, they can be quickly folded into a solution as a record of how universities have resolved something, resolution, dissolution. Resolutions can be problems given new forms. Listening to those who've made or tried to make formal complaints has taught me that the gap between what is supposed to happen and what does happen is densely populated. And this gap is where my own study is located. I am, as it were, minding the gap. So I spoke to one administrator about her work in supporting students through a complaints process. So your first stage would require the complainant to try and resolve it informally, which is really difficult in some situations, and which is where it might get stuck in a department. And so it takes away a tenacious complaining student to say, no, I am being blocked. If something bad has happened and you're not feeling that way inclined, you can understand why a student would not have the tenacity to make sure that happens. So you can imagine that something on paper that looks very linear is actually very circular a lot of the time, and I think that's the problem. Students get discouraged and get demoralised and feel hard done by and nothing's getting resolved, and then they're in a murky place and they can't get out. A complaint is not simply an outcome of a no. A complaint requires you to keep saying no along the way. And this practitioner acknowledges that what is required to proceed with a complaint, in her terms, confidence and tenacity, 
might be what is eroded by the very experiences that led to the complaint, something bad has happened, not feeling that way inclined. So a formal complaint procedure might appear to operate as a straight path, but that path can be blocked at any point. So the experience of a complaint, if represented as a picture, might be rather more like this. <laughs> Circular, round and round, all tangled up, even if you can get in, you can't work out how to get out. If this is a picture of what a complaint feels like, then it might also provide us with an alternative map of the organisation. So to mind the gap is to listen and to learn from those who experience a process. And I've been here before minding the gap. In an earlier project, I talked to diversity and equal opportunities practitioners based in British and Australian universities. One practitioner described the word diversity as a big shiny apple. It all looks wonderful, but the inequalities aren't being addressed. So diversity can be used as a way of appearing to address a problem, rather like complaints procedures. This practitioner described her own job thus. It's a banging your head against the brick wall job. So here, a job description is a wall description. If you keep banging your head against that brick wall and the wall keeps its place, it is you that gets sore. And what happens to the wall? All you seem to have done is scratched the surface. And this is what doing diversity work often feels like, scratching the surface or scratching at the surface. Making a complaint can also feel like scratching the surface. Let me share with you a description from an early career lecturer who made a complaint about how the university mishandled her sick leave, which turned into a formal grievance into how she was treated by her university. It was like a little bird scratching away at something and it wasn't really having any effect. It was just really small, small, small and behind closed doors. I think people maybe feel that because of the nature of the complaint and you're off work so they have to be polite and not talk about it and so much of their politeness is because they don't want to say something. And maybe it's to do with being in an institution and the way they are built, long corridors, doors with locks on them, windows or blinds that come down, it seems to sort of imbue every part of it with a cloistered feeling. There is no air, it feels suffocating. It was like, note this it. A complaint as something you are doing can acquire exteriority, becoming a thing in the world, scratching away a little bird, all your energy going into an activity that matters so much to what you can do and who you can be, but barely seems to leave a trace the more you try the smaller it becomes, the smaller you become, smaller, smaller still. And a complaint is made confidential as soon as it is lodged, so all of this happens behind closed doors. A complaint as a secret, as a source of shame, as what keeps you apart from others. And a complaint almost becomes like a magnifying glass. So much appears, so many details are being picked up by an attention, the geography of a place, the building, the long corridors, the locked doors, the windows of blinds that can come down, less light, less room, you cannot breathe, cloistered, suffocating. So complaints can allow institutions to be registered all the more intensely. You acquire a sense of the institution from an experience of restriction. But that sense is not always about things becoming clear. Because if complaints happen behind closed doors, those doors can also be closed to the one who complains. You can feel like something or someone is pulling the strings, but you just don't know what or who. 
One lecturer who complained after being harassed by a professor in her department describes, it's like being trapped in some kind of weird dream where you know you jump from one section to another because you never know the narrative. I think that's the power that institutional abuse has on you. So making a complaint can feel like becoming a character in somebody else's story. What happens to you is dependent on decisions that are made without your knowledge or consent. And this is why making a complaint about harassment can often feel like being harassed all over again, becoming subjected again to another's will. So this gap between what does happen and what should happen can be what you fall through or how you fall through. And we might remember that this sign, Mind the Gap, is familiar to us from the London Underground, I think, um, as an advice and also as a warning to proceed with care. And warnings are useful because they introduce notions of caution, predicated not on abstract rules about rights and wrongs, but on a person's own health and safety. When you're trying to make a complaint, you're frequently warned about making a complaint. One student describes... I was repeatedly told that rocking the boat or making waves would affect my career in the future and that I would ruin the department for everyone else. I was told if I did put in a complaint, I would never be able to work in the university and that it was likely I wouldn't get a job elsewhere. Complaining here is framed as a kind of rocking motion, causing self-damage, ruining your career, as well as damaging, damage to others, ruining a department, no less. The flip side of a warning is a promise a promise that if you don't complain, you will get somewhere or you will go further, an institutional version of what I call the promise of happiness. So one academic uh, describes not complaining as the default setting. The default academia thing, the university thing, it will be fine if we do wait, don't make a fuss. A default is a thing that happens if you do not change it intentionally by performing an action. So not complaining is us about keeping things steady, by not altering the setting, not complaining as how things are set. Institutional mechanics is about how complaints are stopped. And warnings often articulate a no, don't go there, but complaints can also be stopped by a yes. They can be stopped by the appearance of being heard. One academic describes what followed when a student's made a complaint about the behavior of professors at research events. A meeting is set up by said professors. They said they would have an open meeting, but it was just about calming the students down. So you can indicate that you are willing to hear a complaint to dissolve the complaint. Venting, I call this, and it's used as a technique for preventing something more explosive from happening. So you let the complaint be expressed in order that it can be contained. So once the students have vented their frustrations, once they have got the complaint out of their system, the complaint is out of the system. I think of this mechanism as rather like a pressure relief valve, which releases just enough pressure so it does not build up and cause an explosion. Another method of stopping a complaint is to declare that the complaint is not a complaint because it doesn't fulfill the technical requirements for being a complaint. A member of staff made a complaint about bullying, this time from her head of department, and that experience had been devastating and she suffered from depression as a result. So it took her a long time to get to the point when she could write the complaint. And what happens when she did? 
I basically did it when I was able to because I was just really unwell for a significant period of time. And I put in the complaint and the response that I got was from the deputy VC. He said that he couldn't process my complaint because I had taken too long to lodge it. So some experiences are so devastating that it takes time to process them. And the length of time that is necessary can then be used to disqualify that complaint. So the tightening of the complaint as a genre, a complaint as a requirement to fill in a form in a certain way in a certain time is how many struggles are not recorded. And if organisations can disqualify complaints because they take too long to make, they can themselves take too long in accordance with their own procedures to respond to complaints. So one student described how the university took seven months to respond to her complaint. It was supposed to take no more than three and then another seven months to respond to her response to their response to her complaint. She has a theory. It is my theory that they've been putting in the long finger and pulling this out, dragging this out over unacceptable periods of time to try and tire me out so that I'll just give up. So sometimes it seems that exhaustion is not just the effect, but the point of the complaint process. So exhaustion could even be understood as a management technique. You tire people out so they're too tired to address what makes them too tired. The slowness of response might be explained even by organisations themselves as being a result of inefficiency. We might think of inefficiency as being annoying but indiscriminate, affecting everybody and everything. Listening to those who've complained has taught me how inefficiency can be discriminatory. An international student was waiting for her complaint to be processed whilst her visa was running out. Ten days before my visa was about to run out, I applied for a new visa. And they were like, how can we give her a visa? She's on probation. You have to have good standing to get a visa. And they were like, this complaint thing is open. So for students and staff who are more precarious because of their residential, employment, or financial status, the longer a complaint is kept open, the more you have to lose. So I would say there's a, a connection between the discriminatory effects of inefficiency and the efficiency with which organisations reproduce themselves as being for certain kinds of people. Those whose papers are in the right place, those who are in the right place, those who are upright, able, well-resourced and well-connected. So a complaint can go through the system and still nothing happens. So perhaps complaints then up in, end up in filing cabinets, filing as filing away. One student said of her complaint, it just gets shoved in a box. Another student describes, I feel like my complaint has gone into the complaint graveyard. So when a complaint is filed away or binned or buried, those who complain can end up feeling that they too have been filed away or binned or buried. We need to remember that a complaint is a record of what happens to a person. Complaints are personal. They are also records of what happens in institutions. Complaints are institutional. The personal is institutional. One academic researcher shared her complaint file with me. One of the things I talked about in these documents, I'm very open. I was under such stress and trauma that my period stopped. That's the intimacy of some of the things that go into it. Bodily functions like this. A body can stop functioning. A body can announce a complaint and that body is in a document and that document is in a file and that file is in a filing cabinet. To file a complaint can mean to become alienated from your own history, a history that is often difficult, painful and traumatic, alienated then from your own alienation. This second section is called In the Thick of It. 
So I focused in that section on what happens to complaints, how they are stopped. But complaints, of course, are not the starting point. They are often about what precedes them. They take us back. They have what you might call a backward temporality. So in this section, I want to back up somewhat. A student gives up account of turning up at a postgraduate retreat. They were making jokes, jokes that were horrific. They were doing it in a very small space in front of staff and nobody was saying anything. And it felt like my reaction to it was out of kilter with everyone else. It felt really disconnected the way I felt about the way they were behaving and the way everyone else was laughing. They were talking about milking bitches. I still can't quite get to the bottom of where the jokes were coming from. Nobody was saying anything about it. People were just laughing along. You start to stand out in that way. You were just not playing along. That sexist expression, milking bitches, seemed to have a history. And each time that expression is used, that history is thrown out like a line, a line that you have to follow if you are to get anywhere. When laughter fills a room like water in a cup, laughter as holding something, it can feel like there's no room left. To experience such jokes as offensive is to become alienated, not only from the jokes, but the laughter that surrounds them, propping them up, giving them somewhere to go. And just by not laughing, not going along with something, she starts to stand out. And I think that's really important. A complaint can be registered before anything is even said. It can be expressed by how a body is not attuned to an environment. To express can mean to squeeze something out. In another instance, a junior female lecturer was sexually harassed by a senior male professor, mainly through constant verbal communications. For example, he emailed her about wanting to suck her toes. She thought she'd handle this by asking her line manager to ask him to stop, not knowing that her manager had sat on that request. When an attempt to stop harassment is stopped, the harassment does not stop. And then I was in a meeting with my line manager and her line manager, and we were in this little office space, like a glass fishbowl type meeting room, and then the main office where all the staff desks were, and he emailed me and I made a sound, ugh, there's no way to articulate it. Someone's just dragging your insides like a meat grinder. Oh God, this is not going to stop. And I made that sound out loud and my line manager's line manager said, what's happened? And I turned my computer around and showed him and he said, for fuck's sake, how stupid do you have to be to put that in an email? You could see a look of panic on her face like, crap, this has not magically gone away. That sound, that uh, pierces the meeting. The meeting taking place in the little glass room, a fishbowl, where they can all be seen. Something can become visible and audible, sometimes even despite yourself. A complaint is what comes out when you can't take it anymore. You just can't take it anymore. Your inside's like a meat grinder. A complaint is how you're turned inside out. And note how the problem once acknowledged is implied to be not so much the harassment, but that there was evidence of it. For fuck's sake, how stupid do you have to be to put that in an email? A sound becomes a complaint when it brings to the surface a violence that is already in the room but otherwise would not have to be faced. Remember those windows of blinds that come down. Violence is often dealt with by not being faced. It is then as if the complaint, that sound, that uh, brings the violence into existence, forcing it to be faced, which is why the complaint often acquires forcefulness. The force that it's directed against is assumed to arrive with the complaint itself. 
Going back to the case of the postgraduate student, it's because she experienced what was already in the room as being violent, that the violence is then channeled in her direction. He specifically went for me verbally at a table where everyone was eating lunch. It was a large table with numerous amounts of people around it, including staff. I was having quite a personal conversation with someone. He literally leant across the table or physically came forward. He was slightly ajar to me. He was really close and he said, oh my God, I can see you ovulating. Because she had not found the jokes funny, because she had expressed that she was not condoning the behaviour, because she is not happy with what is going on, he comes after her. Her personal space invaded, her words interrupted, his words flung out and flung at. She was reduced to body pulled back, woman as ovary. She's not allowed to do her own thing, to have a conversation with others, to be occupied as a student. She describes what follows. I think the staff member knew I was deeply upset by it. I pretty much left the table and he followed me out and started a conversation. This is when, probably in hindsight, it started to get difficult. And that staff member started to lean on me. Immediately he said to me, oh, you know what he's like. He's got a really strange sense of humour. He didn't mean anything by it. And the implication was I was being a bit oversensitive and that I couldn't take a joke and that I need to sort of forget about it and move on. So note there is an effort to stop the student from complaining about the situation in the situation. And the staff member, by leaning in this way, positions himself with the harasser, treating the verbal onslaught as a joke, as something she should take and keep taking. So the harasser physically came forward. The staff member leant on her. The response to harassment is harassment, and that is the institutional response. So harassment can be the effort to stop you identifying the harassment as harassment. And the one who identifies the harassment as harassment is harassed all the more. So a complaint can be how you end up leaving the table, how you end up out of it. Or a complaint can be what you have to do to get in. One academic has to keep pointing out that the room is, rooms are inaccessible because they keep booking rooms that are inaccessible. She has to keep saying it because they keep doing it. I worry about drawing attention to myself but this is what happens when you hire a person in a wheelchair. There have been major access issues at the university. She spoke of the drain, the exhaustion, the sense of why should I have to be the one who speaks out? You have to speak out because others do not. And because you speak out, others can justify their silence. They hear you. So it becomes about you. Major access issues become your issues. And the complaint is treated as a broken record, as if she's the one who's stuck on the same point. You might have to make a complaint because you do not fit, because you are a misfit, to use Rosemary Gallon Thompson's important term. A complaint could be almost understood as a misfit genre. Misfits often end up on the same committee, otherwise known as a diversity committee. <laughs> we might end up on the diversity committee. <laughs> we recognise this. <laughs> you might end up on the diversity committee because of who we are not. Not able-bodied, not white, not cis, not man, not straight. The more knots you are, the more committees you end up on. But we can still be misfits on these committees. A woman of colour academic describes, I was on the equality and diversity group in the university, and as soon as I started mentioning things to do with race, they changed the portfolio who could be on the committee, and I was dropped. So certain words carry a complaint. You just have to say the word race, let alone racism, and you'll be heard as complaining. So complaints can be as much about how we are received as what we are sending out. She adds, whenever you raise something, the response is, you're not one of them. 
A complaint then seems to amplify what makes you not fit, picking up on what you are not. A complaint becomes evidence that you're a foreigner, not one of them, not really from here. Complaints, whether or not we make them, tell us about who gets to be one of them. A lesbian academic becomes head of department. She was the first woman to be head of her department, let alone the first lesbian. And she experiences bullying from her colleagues, in part by how they frame her as the bully, as if she's imposing her will on them. For some, to be is to be judged as imposing. I was the first female head department, and everything became stuck to me. The fact that there had been fire doors put in all the rooms to replace the solid wood ones, ones the windows in, that was my fault. That was me wanting to spy on people. It turns out the solid doors were in fact replaced after a number of cases of sexual misconduct and harassment at that university. Whatever the story the doors could tell, and doors always have stories to tell, the doors end up sticking to her. So complaints have a lot to teach us about how negative affects can be picky as well as sticky. You can be picked on by what you're stuck with. She describes, if you have a situation, you make a complaint, then you're the woman who complains, a lesbian who complains, and it gets in the way of being in the role, being a good colleague, a good mentor, a great teacher, a supervisor. And you don't like to hear yourself taking that uh, not petulant tone, bangs table, come on. You can hear them saying, oh, there you go. A diversity practitioner said something very similar to me, that she only had to open her mouth in meetings to witness eyes rolling as if to say, oh, there she goes. Both times we laughed. It can be a relief to have an experience, however difficult, put into words. The feminist killjoy, that leaky container, she comes up here. She comes up in what we can hear. We hear each other in the wear and the tear of the words we share. We hear what it's like to come up against the same thing over and over again. We imagine the eyes rolling as if to say she would say that. It was from experiences like this that I developed my equation, rolling eyes equals feminist pedagogy. <laughs> so this section is called Behind Closed Doors. Doors keep coming up in my data. I'm speaking to an academic about the first complaint she made when she was a student. One of the lecturers on her course had been making her feel uncomfortable. One time she enters his room. And then one afternoon I went into his office to talk to him about something. It was an office a bit like this, but without any glass, with a door that opened inwards and opened on a latch. And he pushed me up against the back of a door and tried to kiss me. And I pushed him away. It was an instinctive pushed him away and tried to get out of the room. And it was a horrible moment because I realized I couldn't actually. It was very difficult to operate the latch. We are back to the door, the back of the door. A door without glass, solid, can't be seen through. A door is what you're pushed against, a latch that won't open, getting stuck, trying to get out, the work you have to do to get out. She did get out of his room, but it was hard. Behind closed doors, harassment happens there, out of view, in secret. You can be locked in, you can be locked out. Doors have something else to teach us. They teach us the significance of a complaint about harassment being lodged in the same place the harassment happened. A door is shut on her. The same door is shut on the complaint, the same door. So what happens? She submits an informal complaint, a letter detailing the assault. Where does that letter go? It ends up with the dean. And what does he do? The dean basically told me that I should sit down and have a cup of tea with this guy to sort it out. 
So often the response to a complaint about harassment is to minimise that harassment as if what occurred is just a minor squabble between two equal parties, something that could be sorted out by a cup of tea, that English signifier of reconciliation. So a complaint then would become about your failure, her failure, to resolve the situation more amicably. She did not proceed to a formal complaint. Her complaint was stopped and he was not. Now, I say her complaint was stopped rather than she was stopped because she did go on to have a career and is now a professor. But that experience of being assaulted by a professor when she was a student stayed with her. She describes, I thought I got a first because of academic merit, but then after this happened, I remember thinking, but hang on, maybe not. Maybe this was some sort of ruse to try and keep me in the institution so he could keep the contact going. It starts undermining your own sense of your academic merit, the quality of your work, and all that kind of stuff. Being harassed by a lecturer can damage your sense of self-worth, intellectual worth, leading you to question yourself, doubt yourself. Her complaint was stopped. She was not, but she carries that history with her. Her complaint was stopped. He was not. What happened to him? She tells us. He was a known harasser. There were lots of stories told about him. I had a friend who was very vulnerable. He took advantage of that. She ended up taking her own life. She ended up taking her own life. So much more pain, so much more damage at the edges of this one woman's story of damage. He went on. He was allowed to go on. When her complaint, and for all we know, there were others too, we do not know how many said no, did not stop him. And he has since retired, much respected by his peers, no blemish on his record. No blemish on his record, no blemish on the institution's record. The damage carried by those who did complain or would complain if they could complain is carried around like baggage, slow, heavy down. To hear complaint is to hear from those weighed down by a history that has left no trace or little trace in the official records. And organisations become aligned with those who abuse power, the power given to them by virtue of position, because they share an interest in stopping what is recorded by the complaint from getting out. Damage to a person is deflected by being treated as potential damage to the organisation and its reputation, or to a person if a person is indeed identified by a complaint. And that damage is often evoked through or as concern, as concern for consequence, for how much he or they would have to lose reputation, yes, but status, standing, and so on. So when we're talking about closing doors, we are also talking about closing ranks. Another student described they have each other's backs. They have each other's backs. Backs can become doors. A complaint can be stopped because of what is shared, who is shared, loyalties, personal and professional, affection becoming like cement in a wall, a bond, a bind, be kind. He is one of a kind. Historic connections then are kept alive as communication pathways. A complaint seems to function almost like a switch, an alarm or an alert that triggers a reaction. A complaint is how a network comes alive to protect those who are the most networked. You can almost hear the buzz of electricity or the phone lines becoming busy. The more someone is connected, the more others are invested in that connection. When an MA student indicated she wanted to make a complaint about the most senior member of her department, the convener of her programme says to her, be careful, he is an important man. Be careful, a warning not to proceed is a statement about who is important. And importance is not just a judgment, it is a direction. The student went ahead with the complaint. In her terms, she sacrificed the references. And in reference to the prospect of doing a PhD, she said, that door is closed. 
that door is closed, references to, can function as doors, mechanisms that enable an opening or a closing, how it is made possible for some to progress, others not. Reference systems are paper trails, letters sent out, they are how some are enabled by their connections, how some gather speed and velocity more and more faster and faster, he is an important man. A paper trail, a path, a route, a narrow corridor, you have to go down that narrow corridor to reach an open door. You have to go through that professor to get anywhere. Many do not make complaints because they feel they cannot afford to lose the references, to lose the connections. Because to lose the connections would mean losing a path through. And note then that power can work through what might appear to others as a very light touch, a touch that is not perceptible to the one not touched. To close a door, all you need to do is to lift a hand, to write a less positive reference. The mere lift of a supportive hand can function as the heaviest of weights. So the actions that close doors aren't always perceptible to others. Doors can be shut after you enter. Doors can be shut because you enter. A black woman academic was racially harassed and bullied by a white woman colleague. I think what she wanted to do was to maintain her position as a director and I was supposed to be some pleb, you know what I mean? She had to be the boss and I had to be the servant type of thing. That was how her particular version of white supremacy worked. So not just belittling my academic credentials and academic capabilities, but also belittling me in front of the students, belittling me in front of administrators. How do you know it's about race? That's a question we often get asked. Racism is how we know it's about race. That war whiteness, or let's call it what it is, as she has white supremacy, we come to know it intimately as it keeps coming up. She told me, I put down that I would like to work towards becoming a professor, and she just laughed in my face. That laughter can be the sound of a door being slammed. To have got there a black woman in a white institution, a lecturer, senior lecturer, on her way to becoming professor, she's now a professor, is to be understood as getting above your station, above yourself, ahead of yourself. To belittle someone, to make them little, can function as a command, be little. And that command is being sent not only to her, but to those who are deemed to share the status of being subordinates, students and administrators. So racial harassment can be the effort to restore a hierarchy, how someone is being told you are not where you should be, or you are above where you should be, or even you are where I should be, or even you have taken my place. Some, in becoming professors, become trespassers. You are being told you need permission to enter, but being told you do not have permission. And that telling can be achieved with and through affection. We are back to doors, how backs become doors. When another white colleague became head of department, that colleague said, I want you to reconcile with her because after all, she is my friend and colleague and all you ever did was write you some long emails. So reconciliation, we are back to that cup of tea. Racial harassment, too, can be reduced to a style of communication, and the damage caused becomes damage to a friend, damage to a white friend, damage even to whiteness. An expression of a desire for reconciliation might appear to be a friendly gesture. There is nothing friendly about this gesture. If she does not return the desire for reconciliation, if she's not willing to smooth things over, moving on, getting along, getting on, she becomes mean. The one who has not only broken the connection but refused to repair it. So whiteness gets reproduced as sympathy, and sympathy becomes part of the machinery. A machine can lean, can be built out of leanings, friendly-like. In the end, she can't take it anymore, and she moves first to a different department, and then to a different university, and then to a different country. She goes, and the work goes with her. There are very few people left to work on race. 
another woman of color described her department as a revolving door. Women and minorities enter only to head right out again, whoosh, whoosh. We can be kept out by what we find out when we get in. Perhaps we learn what is in from those who get out. This is my conclusion, complaint and survival. We learn from how some of us have to fight for what we need to fight to get through the doors of perception. I think of Audre Lorde, I always think of Audre Lorde. Some of us were never meant to survive. For some, survival can be politically ambitious. Transforming institutions can be necessary if we are to survive them, but we still have to survive the institutions we are trying to transform. I'm listening to an indigenous woman academic she told me how she could barely get to campus after a sustained campaign of bullying and harassment from white faculty, including a concerted effort by a senior manager to sabotage her promotion case, as well as the promotion cases of other indigenous academics. When you are harassed and bullied, when doors are closed and they slammed, making it hard to get anywhere, it can be history you are thrown up against, that you are up against. And so when complaints take us back, they can take us back further still to histories that are still. There is a genealogy of experience, a genealogy of consciousness in my body that is now at the stage traumatized beyond the capacity to go to university. So there's a legacy of genealogy and I haven't really opened that door too widely as I've been so focused on my experience in the last seven years. To be traumatized is to hold a history in a body you can be easily shattered. There is only so much you can take on because there's only so much you can take in. We can inherit closed doors. A trauma can be inherited by being made inaccessible all that happened that was too painful, too hard to reveal. Decolonial feminist work, black feminist work, and feminist of color work is often about opening these doors, the door to what came before, colonial as well as patriarchal legacies and genealogies, harassment as the hardening of that history, a history of who gets to do what, who is deemed entitled to what, of who is deemed entitled to who. The work of complaint can thus be understood as emotional work, as physical work, as well as intergenerational work. It takes time, more than a generation, to work out and to work through what has been left behind, what is left to do. A complaint can be necessary, what you have to do to go on, but you still have to work out what you can take on, and she went on by taking them on. I took everything off my door, my posters, my activism, my pamphlets. I smudged everything all around the building. I knew I was going to war. I did a war ritual in our tradition. I pulled down the curtain. I pulled on a mask. My people, we have a mask. And I never opened my door for a year. I let it be a crack. And only my students could come in. I would not let a single person come into my office who I had not already invited there for a whole year. Closing a door can sometimes be a survival strategy. She closes the door to the institution by withdrawing herself and her commitments from it. She still does her work. She still teaches her students. She makes use of the institution's door by using it to shut out what she can and who she can. She takes herself off the door. She depersonalizes it. And she pulls down the blinds and she pulls on a mask, the mask of her people, connecting her fight to the battles that came before because, quite frankly, for her, this is a war. Our battles are not the same battles, but there are many battles happening behind closed doors. And tonight, I've talked about some of them sharing with you stories that have been shared with me. Behind closed doors, that is where complaints are often found, so that is where you might find us too. 
and what we bring with us, who we bring with us, the worlds that would not be here if some of us were not here, the data we hold, our bodies, our memories, perhaps the more we have to spill, the tighter their hold. Sometimes to get that data out, we have to become leaks, drip, drip. When I made the reasons for my own resignation public in protest against the failure to address sexual harassment as an institutional problem, I became a leak. I leaked information out, not very much, but enough. And of course, you become very quickly the cause of damage. Organizations will try and contain that damage. The response, in other words, is damage limitation. This is how diversity often takes institutional form as damage limitation. Happy, shiny policies will be put in place. Holes left by departure will be filled without reference to what went on before, a blot becoming something to be wiped up or wiped away, like they're mopping up a mess. But there is hope here because they cannot mop up all of the mess. A leak can be a lead. A leak can be a feminist lead. I think of this lead as a finding, that we can find each other through complaints. Even when complaints lead us to leave, we leave something of ourselves behind by complaining. Sometimes you hold on by passing a refusal on. A postgraduate student made an informal complaint about white supremacy in her classroom. Using that term for what is here at the university can get you in serious trouble. She knew that, but she was still willing to do that. And she became, in her terms, a monster, an indigenous feminist monster, and is now completing her PhD off campus. She said that an unexpected little gift was how other students could come to her. They know you are out there, and they can reach out to you. And she used that expression a number of times, an unexpected little gift. A complaint in taking you back can point forward to those who come after, who can receive something from you because of what you tried to do, even though you did not get through even though all you seem to have done was scratch the surface. Yes, those scratches, we are back to those scratches. They seem to show the limits of what we could accomplish, but they can also be what we leave behind. They can be testimony, a complaint as writing on the wall, we were here, we did not disappear. Those complaints in the graveyard can come back to haunt institutions. We can come back to haunt institutions. It is a promise. Thank you. Welcome back. That was a couple of 10 minutes. Um, as I was introduced, my name is Hannah Helfet, and I'm going to lead this conversation. For, and we got me and Sarah Amel going to talk for some time, and then I'm going to open up for questions from the audience. So if you have any questions, Please write them down, and then we can, you can ask them afterwards. Um, so that's my plan for the next kind of 40 minutes. Um, and first of all, I have to thank you for that beautiful lecture. Uh, and I find it quite fascinating how you use quotes from complaints to do an institutional critique. And in Norway, I think it's, it would be nearly impossible to talk about these kind of complaints against sexual harassment without talking about Me Too. And I really felt that the perspective on sexual harassment and also making complaints about sexual harassment changed in the Norwegian public sphere after Me Too, that suddenly we have had this perspective of the young girl, often young woman, making the complaints instead of the, the people that's trying to silence her. But that's, I think it's also up to debate if that has really changed or not. Um, 
And I also find that I think it's it's important to remind it kind of the impact that Me Too had in Norway in sheer numbers. There were 18 different manifestos that was had, had these stories from uh, 18 manifestos from different occupational groups that had these kind of stories that you also were reading up. These kind of experiences of harassment and experiences of not getting heard and experiences of giving complaint. And these stories together made a quite impressive impact. And they had these stories and then they made these claims for a change. Um, and together there were 10,600 women who signed these manifestos and 600 men. And that's quite a lot for a small... We're not that small, but anyway, <laughs> a smaller country than England. Um, and, but at the same time, a lot of these kind of what they asked for was better guidelines, better institutional guidelines, better ways to making complaints, better ways to getting heard. And I don't remember. And maybe some of you remember there was this huge survey from the from the minister from uh, from uh, from the from um, about sexual right, uh, violence and abuse in the military sector that showed kind of very devastating numbers um, of have experienced. There were thirty five percent of the personnel that had experienced sexual harassment of some sort in the military forces in the, in the last year. That's that's a lot. Mm. And 44 had experienced the rape, uh, and that was 20 men and 24 women. Uh, but because there's a lot less women in the military, that means that percentage is much higher among the female, uh, female soldiers. Um, and the chief of defense, his first thing that he, what he said when, he, when these kind of, this, study, this devastating study was, why didn't they complain? Why haven't they said anything to them? We have these routines, we have these things, why didn't they complain? So I find the kind of the analysis you do, do working through complaints, very, very important um, because of this debate and because of this framing that we need to kind of, we need more complaint and we need guidelines. And if we have these kind of complaint guidelines and brush up our guidelines and we show that we have these guidelines, then we kind of have problems solved. Um, so I have to ask you, and uh, uh, that's, um, and the discussion is also why didn't they say something like the, like the, the chief of defense said why didn't they say something before and that's also kind of blaming the victim mm -hmm. uh, blaming the person that are harassed um, or abused um, but I have to ask you first does it have to be in this way could institutions do good uh, in these situations or do they have to um, behave like this institutional war of silence. Well, thank you for your, your, your comments and your question. And I think it's important to sort of register the significance of the act of sharing stories historically for feminism. It's been so important mm -hmm. when people begin to speak out about so many of the experiences that often remain behind closed doors for one mm -hmm. reason or another. And I think we know from our many and varied feminist histories that it can take a political movement to open a door so that people feel that they have somewhere to go with the mm. story, that there is someone to tell the story to, mm. that there mm -hmm. is a two. Feminism is about the two mm -hmm. of me too as much as anything. And I think mm. that's important to say what, what you know, politically that means. Mm. And I think of myself as somebody who's receiving stories mm -hmm. and, and holding them, mm -hmm. putting them together and listening to them 
And I think that as a political action is what we're, in one way or another, we're, we're doing that kind of work. And there are many reasons why um, people, uh, complaints get stopped. In a way, it was really helpful what you said, like listening to complaint is a way of doing institutional critique. Mm-hmm. So I have used the language that talks about the ways in which complaints are stopped as being a part how the institution is reproduced. And I think it's really, really important when we think about, well, can institutions be different to also explain how they are resistant to change? I think understanding the institutional resistance to transformation is one of the most important tasks that we have as feminist critics. Otherwise, some of those superficial solutions that complaints will, as positive publicity will be taking the place of a genuine politics of transformation. So I, I think it's really important to note that to understand the institution from the point of view of the person who tries to complain. And one of the things that I've learned is that when you make a complaint, you find out that actually others did complain. Mm-hmm. It's just they didn't necessarily get anywhere. And the, f- um, the institutional forgetting of their work is part of what the institution does. It doesn't record them. It doesn't, it doesn't allow anyone else to know them. But if you do make a complaint, you find out, often through word of, ma- of mouth, mm-hmm. actually other people had tried to make a complaint before. So it does put you in touch with another kind of history of the institution, the history of those who did say no. And I think that's really, really important. So even though my account is of institutions that are resistant to change, it's also an account of the political labour of those who are trying not to reproduce the institution. Mm. And it is political labour um, trying not to reproduce the institution. And I think, you know, if you just think about one of the examples where you're warned about complaining, when you're warned about complaining, you're also told that you will go further if you don't complain. Mm. So that means that what stops a complaint is also what enables you to progress. What stops a complaint is what enables you to progress. So that means that the the stopping of the complaint isn't some sort of separate sphere of action. It's actually central to how the institution rewards and encourages certain kinds of conduct the conduct that doesn't address the problem of the conduct Mm. is rewarded. So this is why I think, when I think about complaint, I'm thinking about the complaint is data. It is data generated on the institution by those who've tried but often failed in their task of not reproducing the institution. Because when you try to stop the institution from being reproduced, the institution is reproduced. And many of those who make complaints do so despite the warnings they do so because they want to stop something from happening. Mm. They are, they, the complainers are often the ones who aren't fatalistic about institutions. They have some degree of confidence in the first instance that there is a point. There is a point to making a complaint because they don't want what happened to them to happen to others. And so this is why I understand sort of my sense of, if I have any sense of optimism, and I do, <laughs> even as a killjoy, it, it actually comes from listening to the people who failed to transform the institutions because they know how the institution works. And we can only really do something different if we listen to the, those who have done their best not mm. to reproduce something, but nevertheless not been able not to reproduce something. And I think that what Me Too kind of did, this is my regard of it, this, this, that show that there has been a lot of complaints about certain people, and then those certain people actually, they had some consequences. Yeah. That happened. And I think that that also the kind of made this complaining, a lot more complaining, <laughs> yeah. happened also because you saw some kind of reaction yeah. to, to what happened and you saw all the others. Yeah. 
So that's I think, I, absolutely, and I think the collectivity of that really matters. I mean, one of the tactics that organisations or um, collectives use is to isolate the complainer. Like, the procedures mm. themselves in the UK, at least, are atomising. You're not allowed to meet anyone as a group. You have to meet as an individual. Mm. And one of the... You know, the attempt to stop the complaint is attempt to make less people complain. So maybe only one student is the one that ends mm. up complaining, so it appears as if it's just one student who has the problem. Mm. And so actually finding out one of the things that happens, I think, I think of complaints as a bit like going on a demonstration. You know, you might go on a demonstration because you think they're, they're in protest against police violence, and then by going on the demonstration, you see the police violence firsthand, and it becomes mm. really politicising mm -hmm. because you're alongside others witnessing the very thing that led you there, but in a much more dramatic form. Mm. And I think that's what happened. The reasons why I think, even though these stories are often about failing to get through, mm. what actually happens when you make a complaint is you find other complainers. And that process, even of institutional failure, is politicising. You get really angry. So you might not begin by thinking of yourself as a critic of the institution or as part of a movement or as dismantling the institution to evoke Audre Lorde, but that's where a lot of people who make complaints end up. And that's the trajectory that I think is quite hopeful. So all these stories might be about stories of not getting anywhere in terms of the immediate resolution of the complaint, but actually there are also stories of getting somewhere of, of creating what I think of as complaint collectives. And that there's a way in which feminism has been about creating these complaint collectives and finding the support, because being on your own and, and trying to redress problems like this is how problems like this are not addressed, because it's just too hard. It's too hard to do that work on your own. But there are, I think, I think you're completely right, but there are a lot, like, you have gender equality advices, you have, uh, as you also have interviewed, diversity. We don't have a lot of that in Norway, actually. Uh, but we have gender equality advices um, that also work with diversity issues. Um, but um, we have these workers and we have this, that are part of the institution at the same time as they're trying to, as they are doing their work, yeah. <laughs> begging against the wall. Yeah, yeah. And what role do you think they play in this way of they are being part of this institution yeah. and they're also legitimizing that institution, you could say. Uh, after, uh, that's what I'm kind of... What, is, what, what do you think about that? I have a lot to think. I think a lot about that. I yeah. mean, I, the book I wrote on being included, mm -hmm. um, which came out in 2012, was based on interviews of diversity practitioners. And a lot of my understanding of institutions and institution, what I've called institutional mechanics actually comes from listening to people who are appointed as diversity practitioners. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really difficult and ambivalent position because you are appointed by the institution at one level to transform the institution. Mm. But just because you're appointed by the institution to transform the institution, it doesn't mean the institution's willing to be transformed. No. So diversity <laughs> practitioners are actually really well-placed to understand mechanics. Yes. They, this is why the wall comes from the experience of trying to diversify the institution because mm. you're constantly being told that's what you're supposed to do, but you're constantly being blocked by those who are telling you that's what you're supposed to do from doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And um, I think that is why I've un that I understand. That sounds a bit frustrating, It maybe. sounds... It is. <laughs> it is, like the big wall. I mean, yeah. you can... And the, the scratches on the wall could also be like the scratches of the fingernails you're trying, trying, trying to get through, and you don't. The sore head. I mean, all of this is about frustration and difficulty. And I think, you know, I actually think it's very important to just talk about that 
what it feels like to come up against those walls. Um, I noticed when I did the interviews for that project, I'm not a social scientist by training, <laughs> I'm a humanities trained researcher, but I was doing these interviews and I was doing my best to listen. And one I, I think I really noticed was when I first would start the interview, the person would be like giving me the mission speech. Oh, this university has all of these things and we've got all of these policies and it's all doing really, really well. And then gradually over time, those happier official stories, mm-hmm. languages began to wear out and a very different account of the institution emerged. So the ambivalence of being employed by the one that's blocking you actually means you generate a huge amount of data. And Mm. you're supposed to be a cog in the machine, but I tell you, the cogs know the machine better than anybody. And that's why I really... And and actually, it's from diversity practitioners that I really learned to think about what it means to work strategically within the institution, using Mm. its resources to do what you can, where you can, and how you can. And, and the same is true talking to com- about complaints, because the complaints typically will be uh, dealt with and handled by human resources departments in mm-hmm. the UK, so again, administrators. And most of the time, you know, you are trying to do your best within the limitations of the resources and mandate that you're given. And one of the things that's been really interesting to me is I've been collecting stories of moments of institutional kind of individual and institutional resistance to the, the mandate. Mm-hmm. So one story would be one time a, a student with a disability was trying to get... Um, reasonable adjustments and failing because the institution said that it was not subject to the equality law, mm. which it's not supposed to say, obviously, because mm. the equality law is law. But um, And, you know, that was a really, really hard and painful experience because you're trying desperately to get the adjustments that you need to do your work, but the effort to get the adjustments that you need to do your work are even harder and make it even harder mm. to do that work. Mm. So she was feeling really, really um, worn down by this, and a lot of my stories are stories of being worn down by the work that you have to do to change the conditions to enable you to do the work. And then suddenly, on the fax machine in the office, this file appeared. This file appeared out of nowhere. And it was a file of all of these previous cases in that university of previous students with disabilities who had tried really hard to get adjustments Mm. to workload in order to do their work, including handwritten letters. So someone at that meeting who saw the frustration of this student, who saw the wearing down and the the, the (laughs) desperateness she felt, had gone and retrieved a file that had been locked in a cabinet Mm. and put it on the fax machine. And I, I think that there are these moments of, like, possibility afforded or in it to those who are supposed to do the work mm. of mm. reproducing their machinery. And mm. there's a lot of stories I have like that. Mm. So, the, you know, I think the, the complainer, in a way, is the one who refuses what I would call institutional fatalism, mm. that this is as it is and how it must be, who says, well, no, it doesn't have to be like this. And although you might think the administrator has little room to not reproduce what the institution requires, I think there is room and I have, there are lots of ways in which people actually put themselves on the line because they don't want to be part of the machinery that they mm. can see the effects on other people of that machinery. So I think it's, that's, that's in itself really interesting to me. Yes, and I think, I think it's, a, it's a crucial question how to make these um, stories of, and experiences of sexual harassment and racial uh, discrimination or of any sort, how to make them not just personal stories, but also political stories and collective stories. And um, uh, since I've been, um, I'm, I have written a book about sexual harassment, and then we are being holding, held, um, have courses about sexual harassment in for various different groups. And one of these, um, uh, one of these questions of like institutional change is that 
I've talked to somebody in the in uh, in the um, in the major labor union in Norway, and she told me that she's been working with these guidelines. Uh, and this is not to say anything bad about that. But she told me that it's very difficult to make people... It's very easy to make people... to talk about the guidelines and the kind of the policy and how we're going to do stuff. But it's very difficult to make... to have, like, this conversation about sexual harassment that is just happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the, kind of the, the conversation silenced around, uh, and this doesn't happen with other political questions that they're working with in the union. It's not, it's not that with every question, but it is that with the question of sexual harassment and how to break that silence. And I think that that's, I'm going to ask you that question. How, 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 how can one break that silence? How is it possible to kind of not, that this, these questions are not, could be talked about in a way of, in other in a, in a political language that it's easier or maybe easier I don't know, make it make it more um, not just a, a question of suffering but also a question of politics yeah yeah i mean i think I mean, i've i've used the concept of the non performative mm. to talk a little bit about guidelines and policies and procedures so the mm. non performative is where you um, you name something in order not to bring it into effect Mm. And a lot of diversity work involves non-performativity. Like, there's mm. a lot of things being said and done, commitments being made without any change happening. Yeah. And it was almost like the policies and the, the names and the words come to stand in for the change. And I think the consequences of non-performativity are, for us, a huge amount of political labour mm. because people can be... It's a bit like Mind the Gap. The, there is a kind of... On paper, it can look... The organisation can appear a certain way. We don't, we don't tolerate mm. sexual harassment. We mm. are committed to diversity... But there is a big gap between how the organisation appears and what happens. Yes. But even policies that are not in use can still be used as evidence of what does not exist. Mm. So this is a real problem. Mm. Um, and I've, I've learnt to think through the consequences of non-performativity from talking to practitioners. Mm. So I've also talked to quite a few people who've gone through complaints processes after organisations have invested a great deal mm. in changing their procedures and found that actually nothing has changed. So that the, 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 the change to procedure as stand-in for, for political change is a real problem. Mm. I, I, having said that, just very quickly, I, I would say that changing complaints procedures does matter. One of the things that really matters is the introduction of anonymity as mm. a way of actually a, enabling people to come forward because most people don't come forward because they fear retaliation for good yeah. reason. Yes. And many people do experience retaliation and punishment in a consequence for naming individuals. So, But, yeah, that... The kind of con- the, it, it, sound, it doesn't sound like much. Let's have a conversation. And it can easily be a, la- a sort of liberal gesture. Oh, let's talk about it, like, you know, talking as opposed to doing. But actually having a conversation about harassment and abuse as a part of all kinds here where we are mm. is a really important thing to do. And it mm. was a thing that we found really hard to enable mm. where I was working. Mm. One of the reasons I had to leave was because the silence surrounding the issue was so <laughs> compulsory And the compulsoriness did not just come from senior management. It didn't come from someone saying, Sarah, you're not allowed to talk about it. It came internally from within academic communities. Mm. And I think that's what I really want to explain because a lot of people who have talked to me about complaint have said that they have been silenced, not necessarily or not only by senior management or by human resources officers, or, but actually by colleagues, even in some cases by feminist colleagues, who have said to them that talking publicly about these issues would be damaging to the organisation and its reputation and even to feminism 
because feminism, when it's resourced by the institution, in some way its political career becomes bound up with the career of the institution. And I think that that, that way in which to working that through has been really, really important to me, how that works. And it, it's happened across so many different stories that I've collected that actually mm. it's the people that are, have political solidarity with you on other matters who are the ones that often try to silence you and to stop you from going public with, with, the, with, with the harassment case. And, you know, my own view is often you're not really going to get very far until the story gets out. Because when, when organisations deal with it in-house, often I think of the in-house is really about, you know, I, I call it restoring the furniture. You know, <laughs> it's like polishing the furniture so it looks better, but it's not really dealing with the issue. Because actually dealing with the issue is actually talking about the hierarchies and the, the institu- in the institution. Mm. It is actually about who is enabled to do what. It is mm. about entitlement. It's often about protecting senior colleagues. And you have to remember that many of the people whose behaviour is under question might be colleagues. They might be your colleagues, your friends. And there's a lot of loyalty and protection that makes the complainer into the, as I call it, the stranger. So to really have a conversation, we actually really need to look internally in, into any organisation, into its own sort of ways of distributing um, worth and power and life chances differentially. And it often requires a really deep internal critique of one's own complicity in reproducing a system that let this happen and enabled this to happen. And I think they're the kinds of conversations about complicity uh, that are very, very hard to have because people really, in a way, often don't want to know. They might want to retain their idea of the institution as being warm and diverse and inclusive. They might not want that idea of the institution disturbed because that would disturb their own relationship to the institution. So it's really hard work to work out how harassment gets built in. But what the stories have been telling me is, and this is the reason I've used doors and windows and corridors, that it becomes part Mm. of the building. So to do the work of changing the institution really is a dismantling effort. To think, I I think of it as well as institutional funnelling, how often with institutions it gets narrower and narrower at the exit points, and that is often what enables abuses of power to happen because you have to go through very few points to get somewhere. Mm. And that's why a lot of harassers often represent themselves as being doors. Like, if you, unless you do this, the door will be close to you. So we really need to look into, at the institution itself. And that means looking at our own implication in the institution as potential beneficiaries from the very systems that are directly harming others. But could a complaint be wrong? Could the complainer do? Could it? Could it not be true? Could it? Sometimes yeah. that could happen. Uh, it's, it's possible. It's also possible, for instance, that a lot of my stories involve people who are um, making complaints about harassment and bullying. Often, then get complained about. So, complaints procedures can be yes. used as techniques of discipline. Yeah. Um, of course, a complaint can be wrong. I think. I think we believe her, or I believe her, as a political statement really matters. Mm. Because actually the desire for the complainer to be wrong is very motivating. And it's often how so many complaints are dismissed in advance. For example, in a lot of complaint policies in the UK and in Australia, both contacts actually mention the malicious complainer in the policy. So that figure of the malicious complainer Mm. precedes the complaint. So we need to really challenge the desire for the complainer to be wrong whilst recognising that making a complaint about a wrong doesn't necessarily make you right. And recognising that... Uh, particularly for um, black and minority ethnic staff. Actually, if you're trying to address questions around race, you're, there's often a complaint that you're being racist. 
So a complaint can be used against those who are trying to address a problem, making them the problem, and, and whose complaints get taken more seriously than others is also a political question about who, in general, whose voice is taken more seriously than yes. others. So complaints don't get you out of the murky, uneven world of institutionalised inequality. They are mm. right in it. Mm. And I think recognising that is a really important part of the project of, 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 of drawing on complaint as a way of challenging institutional histories. Mm. Hmm. Um, I think I want to um, also ask you a, a question of you, you kind of you, in your very nice uh, elaboration <laughs> of complaints. You also you also mention how it's if it's possible how to how also complaints and dismantling the institutions. Do you have do you have a story of a dismantling of an institution, or is that does that is that is it, is just is it um, is it possible? It's kind of the history of, of uh, how feminist studies and gender studies kind of emerged in the academia. Is this a history of trying to kind of at least combine the gap of some sort? Yeah, I mean, I, I use this word dismantling um, to directly evoke Audre Lorde's essay, Master's mm. Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. And in that essay, which I recommend mm. everyone to reread mm. at least once a month, <laughs> she says a lot of really interesting things. And one, I mean, she's, she's, she was asked on the 30th anniversary of Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex to participate in a conference and a panel on the person's political. She turns out, she finds that that's the panel, the only panel where um, lesbianism and black women are represented. And she does a critique of the conference. She does a complaint. Yeah. She uses the space and time she's been given to do a critique of the space and time she's been given. And that is where she does this critique really of white feminism mm. and the way in which uh, she says um, that being resourced by the master's house can then render that version of doing feminism, it can render it... Um, very suspicious of those who are trying to do the work of dismantling. Mm. Um, so she says that those who are resourced by the master's house will find those who are trying to dismantle the house threatening. That's mm. her word, threatening. Now, I think that's incredibly interesting because I've also experienced that quite a lot, that mm. when we're talking about dismantling, we're not, you know, I, I do think of walls coming down without question because walls are um, not just the things that hold buildings up. They, what I'm trying to show in my work, drawing on many other work, works, is that, that walls are sedimented histories. They're the mm. histories that get stuck. They become physical barriers to some from entering and progressing. So from my point of view, when I talk about complaint, I'm thinking of it as a kind of form of diversity work so diversity work is often the work you do because you're not accommodated or the work you mm. do in order to be accommodated. So accommodation sounds quite far away from dismantling, mm. but I would argue that it's not. I would argue that in order for some to be able to enter or to be in the institution, it requires us for stopping what mm. usually happens from happening. And I think that we have behind us a lot of evidence of complaints doing that work. Of mm -hmm. Certainly, we know that there can be superficial solutions that underdescribe the problem, mm -hmm. but actually it might be what you need to do to render spaces physically accessible. Mm -hmm. It might be what you have to do to ensure that if someone... Um, uh, questions sexist humour, racist humour, they're not made into the problem. There, there, there are ways in which people can actually require the organisation no longer to reproduce what it business as usual. Hmm. And for some people, we have to stop what usually happens from happening in order to be in that space. And hmm. The stories of complaints are often about who leaves. So the work of dismantling is also what you have to do enable to, to enable some people to be in the institution. And, you know, some of us are here. 
So mm. this is evidence of the project of dismantling <laughs> yeah. working. But it takes a lot more, and it will take a lot more. And I, in terms of the UK, for example, really trying to dismantle the structures of, of cis-sexism, the anti-trans move part of, of, of contemporary feminism in the UK, that's where we're really doing the work of dismantling now because there's an increasing mainstreaming of kind of anti-trans politics and feminist politics. So that means that for many trans students and non-binary students, the university has become an uninhabitable space. Mm. So to do the work of dismantling requires rendering those forms of politics, um, uh, to mm. ensuring that they no longer have a part of of the reproduction of the environment. So, that, so when I think of dis- that's what I'm thinking when I'm mm. talking about dis- dismantling, and I, I think that work does require complaint collectives. Uh, it does require people to sort of work together as a movement to mm. say no, you know, to, to say no to what to what has historically been understood as business as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of explicitly um, call your complaints critical theorists, and these are yeah. these are these are. Uh, the ones that are um, guides me through, and you, so you kind of theorize from experience, um, and this kind of also regards to how to do feminist studies and how to do feminist politics. Do you think we also always need to um, work through experience to be a feminist or to do feminist studies? Oh, I, I think you can do feminist studies in lots of different ways <laughs> and we can draw on experience ourselves or other people's experience in lots of different ways. I think one of the reasons I stressed that point was not just to explain my own lack of citation <laughs> of known academics, but it was also, it's also to say that sometimes we might assume that like, we are the theorists and that we're theorising the material that we have, whether mm. it's a, a piece of fiction, a poem, or a quote mm. from an interview, that the theory is what we bring to it. What I'm trying to suggest, yeah, following on from others without question, is that the theory happens in the... It, it, other people are doing the theory. The people who are making complaints are theorizing, explaining, making sense of mm-hmm. really difficult experiences. It's not mm. me theorizing about their experience. It's me gathering the different experiences and hearing the theories mm-hmm. in them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very important part of um, of the project of, of my ethics is is, to, is is precisely not to assume theory is what comes from me and and then goes out to the the material that I'm working with, but to understand the material as doing the work. That, that you're part of that work, you're hearing. I remember when I first was working with the, the quotes from my diversity study, it took me a long time to realise that people kept talking about walls. Like, the walls were in the data, but it took mm. me a long time to be able to hear what the walls were doing. Once I heard what the walls were doing, I was able to put those stories together and to make an argument and a narrative. So I'm involved mm. in the theorising, but mm. the, material, the materials are not just inert things that I'm explaining, they are themselves condensations of experience into a way of framing, understanding and interpreting what is going on. And I think academics tend to be a little bit too invested in their own kind of like originality and importance. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, a lot of really important important theoretical work comes from people who are trying not to reproduce an injustice, who are trying Mm. to address an injustice. That's where a lot of feminist theory comes from. Mm -hmm. It comes from people who are poets and activists. It it doesn't really come from people who are sitting in universities writing books. Um, In your talk, you said, I think it's a very crucial thing, that making a complaint can feel like becoming a character in somebody else's story. But 
I think your work actually makes it possible to be a character in one's own story, in one's own feminist story. So thank you for your work, oh, thank you. Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.